Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey everyone, welcome back. So today's guest on the podcast really needs no introduction. She is a frequent guest and fan favorite. (laughs) She's also a favorite of mine. I am a fan of hers. Today, we are welcoming back Annette Altman's founder of The Mend Project, and she is here to discuss double abuse and how it can exacerbate the trauma a victim is already experiencing from their abuser. So double abuse happens when and a victim seeks help and the help becomes another harmful encounter where instead of supporting you, the person belittles your experience, disregards what you're telling them, um, you know, doesn't believe you. Um, and this could be institutions, people, um, all sorts of uh, ways that this happens. And it's a really, really important uh, topic to discuss. So I'm very, very happy to have Annette back. And I just wanted to let you guys know that I am still taking on a couple more private clients. If you have wanted to work with me privately, now is the time. And I will be taking July off, just FYI. Other than that, you know, we can we can get started if you're ready, if you are sort of itching to go and try to figure out how to move through this. If you need help crafting conversations, you need help crafting parenting plans and difficult communication, if you need someone to consult um, between yourself, your attorney, what, what are the best options and how to deal with all of this stuff, and more importantly, how to navigate the emotional fallout and heal from the trauma. These are the things that I do, and I would love to do them with you. So if you are interested in private coaching, hit me up, kateanthony.com slash private coaching. You'll find it on the um, homepage, kateanthony.com. Just click on private coaching and there's a link to set up a consultation. And we'll just find out if this is the best choice for you at this time. And that's it. That's all That's all the additional stuff I wanted to tell you about. So let's dive in to my conversation with Annette Altman's. Annette, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast once again. Uh, I'm just so happy to have you here to have this really important conversation about double abuse. Well, thank you, Kate, so much for having me. I really enjoy talking to you because you have a lot of knowledge on the subject and we have fun conversations. It's true. We do about really heavy, <laughs> about really heavy subjects. 
sad things. Fun conversations about heavy and sad things. You're doing so much good by informing your community. It's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for for being a part of that. Truly, you wanted to give a little bit of some background about covert emotional abuse. You've been on the podcast before talking about this. Yeah. Um, but so for those who have not heard that, we want to just give a little recap. Okay. About covert emotional abuse. Yeah. I wanted to just, um, for those who um, are in a painful or um, difficult marital relationship or partner relationship, um, oftentimes they don't realize that that relationship is actually destructive. It's not just difficult. We uh, many have difficult relationships for various reasons, but it doesn't mean that a type of emotional abuse is the core problem. But with covert emotional abuse, um, it really makes the relationship destructive and um, harms the person on the receiving end who I'll refer to as a victim. And you may have community members listening that don't realize that they are victims and maybe they don't want or aren't ready to face that what they're experiencing, you know, that's causing so much stress and confusion in the relationship is because of abuse. But I think it's a really important step for victims Mm -hmm. to be able to identify um, the covert emotional abuse is basically the hidden forms of emotional abuse. It's not the over style of abuse, which would be the raging, the name calling, the loud put downs or Overt would also be physical abuse, you know, spitting, um, breaking things. Those um, are still very confusing, but victims tend to be more able to recognize that the problem is with their partner, not they don't internalize it as something is wrong with themselves. But with covert emotional abuse, that's things like blame shifting or lying. Um, minimization when your partner minimizes what's important to you, or when you raise a reasonable complaint or concern, they tell you you're too sensitive. Mm-hmm. So now you got hurt in the first place, and then you get doubly blamed um, for being too sensitive. And we have a comprehensive list of covert emotionally abusive behaviors uh, on our website at uh, the MEND project.com that will really help people in difficult relationships or destructive relationships understand the core problems. And we really validate them by putting it into proper language. Mm -hmm. So for the first time, they can actually advocate for themselves with either a friend, a family member, or their therapist, where what we find over and over again is that victims of covert emotional abuse languish in these states of stress and confusion that are known as trauma states for months, years, or even decades before Mm -hmm. they realize that what they're actually dealing with is a form of domestic violence. In fact, covert emotional abuse is the common thread in all relationship abuse cases. So if it's child molestation or child abuse, if it's uh, work like sexual harassment at work or workplace sabotage or domestic violence, covert emotional abuse 
is the main theme. And so many um, people who have experienced physical and covert emotional abuse will say that the covert emotional abuse was so much worse because it's what kept them in this state of stress and confusion where they doubted themselves. They didn't necessarily, they weren't able to connect the dots that it is something that they're partner is doing because they're so confusing and manipulative mm -hmm. um, and hard to describe that they feel like they are um, being oversensitive or too demanding. The victim does. Um, and so, and they, or that something about them is intrinsically flawed. They think right. maybe I'm not lovable, or they think maybe if I said it differently, he would understand and show me empathy. Or um, maybe something, I don't know how to do relationships. Maybe I never learned that. And oftentimes, victims of covert emotional abuse did have some disruption in their, um, a, as a child, with their attachment to their primary caregiver. Maybe they weren't emotionally very available to them to help them really develop their emotions and to really feel confident in their perspectives. And so they doubt, they intrinsically doubt themselves first. They're more willing to over function, work really hard on the relationship, um, even though it doesn't produce results. And they're more willing to blame themselves. And so I just wanted to give that background about yeah. emotional abuse before we step into what double abuse actually is. And I think it's really important, as you said, it, it is it is important to be able to identify this for yourself. And I also firmly believe that it's that it's really empowering that identify the first step in sort of healing from victimization in moving away from being a victim is acknowledging that that is what's happening. And so it becomes one of your most powerful tools. Um, as a lot of people are like, I'm not a victim. I don't want to, I don't want to be seen as a victim or I don't want to identify as a victim. And that's, you know, look, that's to each their own. Right. And yes, we're survivors. But I think first acknowledging that we are a victim <laughs> is the, is yeah. that that is the first step. It's a really important step. So often they don't want to use the abuse word. In fact, yeah. um, we say, when you're interfacing as if you're a therapist and you're interfacing with clients to be careful about over confronting them by saying that's abuse. You're in an abusive relationship. You need to take time to develop your relationship. And, but we also, so we say don't over confront them, but we also say don't under inform them, mm -hmm. give them the terms and definitions of what constitutes abuse. And that way, the person who's on the receiving end of that abuse from a wellspring inside themselves will be able to go, oh my gosh, this is what I'm dealing with. This is abuse. It finally makes sense. I'm finally understanding that. Yes. That's why I'm not, that's why we're not resolving our problems. That's why there's never solutions. That's why problems just keep continuing and patterns of behaviors keep playing out over and over again. Mm -hmm. So it's, yes. It, and also in the healing journey, part of what victims really need to do is to become so well-versed on the abusive behaviors being employed against them 
that they are they can easily identify them so they won't be blindsided and sucked into that vortex of chaos with their abuser. They can see it for what it is and then they can learn to make other choices for how to respond rather than to jump in and engage in a in a basically it's a, it's a circle. It's like the circle keeps spinning but they don't get anywhere. Right. And so it is right important to understand exactly what is happening to you. That's right. And it's and and I want to stress that it's important for you to understand what's happening to you, not so that you can bring the information to to your abuser because I think this is so common, right? I know I did it. I was like, "Oh, Wait a minute. No, 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 no. What you're doing is abusing me. And if if you knew that, then you would obviously want to stop. <laughs> so let me point right. out to you that, that oh, but honey, this is abuse. You're abusing me. Like no abuser in the history of the world ever said, Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, okay, I'll stop everything now. <laughs> right. That's I love that you said that. And that is because, well, if if a person was they just learned bad habits along their life span and they employ, you know, we've all done something abusive. Like we've all responded in ways or reacted. I said, I I should say in ways that we're not proud of that could be qualified as abusive. But when it's pointed out to us um, that that was hurtful, we want to be better people. So we just naturally stop the behavior and say, oh my gosh, you're right. You know, that I, I don't want to do that to you. That mm-hmm. that was a constructive way to communicate. But an abuser has an entirely different worldview. He he views relationships through a whole different paradigm. He has different expectations and ideals about what a relationship is supposed to look like. That is very different. It's an entirely different worldview than the victim's perspective of what a relationship should look like. Um, the victim is more empathic and understanding and is willing to sacrifice and um, re- be reciprocal and, you know, do, do, do so many things that the abuser is not willing to do because they have a sense of entitlement. They have faulty thinking, faulty belief systems, you know, like patriarchy, feel like they're in a hierarchical position. So it justifies their overpowering and controlling um, the victim or controlling conversations by shutting the victim's voice down, you know, through those, through blame shifting and minimization and so many other behaviors. They basically stonewall or block the victim from ever being able to have a healthy conversation where they are able to move to a resolution. So, uh, Yes, the abuser is not going to respond when you bring him the terms and definitions and say, oh, I didn't realize that he's going to attack the author of the terms and definitions or say, what what makes you think you know more than I do about psychology or whatever? They're they're going to discredit it. They're not going to take responsibility because that's they have a responsibility deficit disorder. They do not take responsibility for Love that. their own action. <laughs> responsibility deficit disorder. <laughs> That's great. Um, so yes, so we can, you know, we can talk about this piece 
all day as always, but let's move into double abuse, right? Because that's really what we want to talk about here. What is double abuse in your in your your definition? I came up with the term double abuse and trademarked it, um, hoping that it would start to take hold, which it has, um, because um, some people will say re-abuse or secondary abuse, but those have other meanings. Like secondary abuse can mean abused over and over by the same person or by multiple people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wanted a term that specifically dealt with the way people respond to victims when they finally find the courage to speak out or reach out for help. So it's either the inadvertent or at times intentional secondary layer of harm that takes place um, when a victim is not believed or when they try to tell the story, you know, they try to tell a pastor or a therapist about their marriage and they're minimized. They may even be ignored completely, you know, dismissed, or they're given unwanted or incorrect instructions. In most cases, these victims have tried everything under the sun to make their relationship work. So being given incorrect instructions is really unhelpful and even traumatizing. Mm -hmm. They're often criticized or they're interrogated in pointed and leading ways like, well, have you tried this? Well, you must have been that. Well, what did you do to make him so angry? Um, You know, they're wrongly judged. And Mm -hmm. um, if they decide to separate or divorce, um, oftentimes they are ostracized by their family or their social community or their church community um, because, you know, you should never divorce. There's all these beliefs and unconscious biases surrounding that. And um, they basically, are not supported when they speak out or seek help. And those, the ways that they're not supported actually exacerbates their trauma. So they already probably, and don't even know it, have post-traumatic stress right. from a long-term relationship with a covert abuser. Um, and they might not understand why they overreact or why they behave in ways that isn't normal to their true character, isn't in line with their true character. And these are traumatic reactions, involuntary reactions. Um, But there's so many signs of PTSD that we could talk about. But um, basically, what point I really want to make is that it's important for victims or people who think they might be a victim to understand that they may have PTSD. And so they're very vulnerable to having that trauma exacerbated into complex PTSD, which often happens from the double abuse. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, you know, oftentimes we go and confide in a trusted friend, or maybe even like what happened to me, I went to my Bible study leaders. And um, rather than believe me, they just discredited me. um, And they gave me horrible advice. They um, aligned with my husband and supported him while they judged me as not being like a submissive wife or a supportive wife. And how dare I disparage my husband? They even said, if you just say anything 
anything more about your husband. And I was in a heap of tears. Like clearly I was emotionally distraught or emotionally exhausted and there was no compassion. They just wrongly judged the situation. And when I did not comply with their ultimatums, because they were, it was horrible advice. They basically withdrew all communication from me. And I had been in this group for 14 years and they just basically cut me off. Wow. Oh my God. That's terrible in that. And so that sort of thing is, can be very traumatizing to a victim. What actually often happens is you, you go to people, victims make the mistake of going to people that they know loves their husband and loves them. And that actually is not a safe thing to do because people don't see the abuse. So they don't believe they they have a hard time imagining the abuser acting that way, acting so differently at home than they do in front of their family and friends and their church community. They take a big risk. Their motivation is pure. They want to go and get help. So they go to people that they think will support them as a couple and help them work through it. Right. They're just judged and discarded, basically. Um, And when you're discarded by people that you feel that you're firmly attached to and trust and that love you, then what it does is it actually mischaracterizes you. And you as an individual are now feeling mischaracterized in your core community. And when that happens, you feel as though you have lost your sense of identity. It has been completely rewritten. And Dr. Judith Herman in her fabulous book, Trauma and Recovery, talks about how a loss of identity causes complex post-traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. So when you feel that loss of identity, whether it's within your family, in your church family, in, in your social circle of friends, it's just so highly traumatizing that it completely alters you from a neurological, you know, it's, 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 it's a neurological effect that it has on you, on your mind and your body. You will have, um, an endo- you, your endocrine system will go haywire from all the cortisol. You may have a myriad of autoimmune illnesses or other illnesses that take hold. Um, and you, bec- your thinking becomes more fragmented because of the trauma. And, and fragmented thinking is when victims have a hard time, you know, connecting the dots in, or, yeah. or keeping a cohesive conversation going. They kind of remembered something else that was traumatic and then it interrupts their thoughts. And then it's hard for the person to really understand what they're, what they're trying to communicate and when you couple that with the fact that they don't have the terminology to describe it, they're fragmented, they're agitated, they're frustrated, they're hurt. You're seeing this presentation of someone that can appear unstable right? when their abuser is calm, cool, and collected. He's not mm-hmm. the traumatized one. Yeah. You're the traumatized right. one. And you start to doubt yourself. You wonder if something is truly wrong with you because you don't understand that you have complex post-traumatic stress. 
and you feel so alone and discarded by your community. Yeah. I, I just always think of Gabby Petito. You know, whenever we talk about how unhinged the victim can be and how calm the abuser can be, I just always think of that traffic stop in Moab and just how all of the signs were there. Yes. And, you know, talk about double abuse. She was fucking was murdered. <laughs> yes. Right. She was fucking murdered because they didn't recognize it. No, that was horrible. I watched that video several times and I just couldn't believe all the signs. They all missed. the signs. Mm -hmm. They missed everything. And this is, you know, this is why it is so important that we do this work, right? Because we have to, people have to learn to recognize these signs that we're not the crazy ones. Like maybe if someone who's, someone's presenting like, you know, like they're quote crazy or unhinged or whatever, it's because they're, because they're completely traumatized. Exactly. And I think, you know, in a lot of the work that we do at the men project where we train responders, that's, we really go in depth into the signs of trauma, like the uncontrollable shaking, when they start talking about it, their body just starts humming like a hummingbird. They just start yeah. shaking, their hands are shaking. Things like that are really important signals to help a responder or a helper accurately assess a situation. Yeah. It's really also important that victims understand, like, I wish that I had been more informed when I reached out to my Bible study group, because then when they disparaged me mm -hmm. and gossiped about me in yeah. broader community, which they did, oh. I would have had more, uh, I would have had a stronger sense of self. So I would not have been as affected. I would have been hurt, but not so traumatized. Um, it's so important that like, for example, I looked, they were about 10 years older than me, um, most of the people in my Bible study group. And I I viewed them as being more mature in their faith, even though clearly the way they responded was very immature <laughs> in their faith. It made me vulnerable. Like I should have, uh -huh. I should have been able to say, I'm an adult. I know what's best for me. I need to set boundaries and make the decisions that are going to help me get healthy. And not be so concerned about what other adults want to believe. That should not have affected me so much. Um, but if but I the was stronger. Right. But the reason that you didn't have those was because the abuser had whittled those away from you anyway. That's right. right? He like, whittled, so <laughs> whittled them away. And I didn't understand that it was a form of abuse. I just... Mm -hmm felt exhausted. I was really sick with autoimmune illnesses oh, and um, knew that I needed a separation and I needed to stop couples therapy, which I did. Yes. Yes. We have a, Annette has a great episode that we'll link in the show notes. If you haven't listened to it about couples therapy and abuse um, that everybody needs to, everyone needs to hear if you haven't already. Um, right. Yeah. But so I want victims out there to really understand double abuse so that if they ever feel a sense like they're being judged, or even if they, the seemingly benign expression of apathy, mm. when someone's apathetic, that's also traumatizing. Absolutely. Or when they pull away and they don't really want to get involved or they 
take a neutral stand. Neutrality benefits only one person, the abuser. It never benefits the victim. Victims need to recognize these signs so that they can gently just stop the conversation. They can look at their watch and say, oh, shoot, I forgot I had an appointment or it just exit the conversation. Don't try to convince them. You're not going to convince them. Uh, They are entrenched in their own beliefs. Move on to someone that will be more supportive of you. And that might mean no one in your personal life. It might mean that you need to reach out to a local domestic violence shelter and join one of their classes, Mm -hmm. uh, their group classes or their online classes where you'll receive support and clarity and um, the kinds of language and validation that you really need to hear. So That's you right. need to get yes. creative about who you confide in and you need to be very cautious to protect yourself from exacerbated trauma. Yeah. And it's so, it's so true. It might not be anybody that's in your circle and that's okay. And, you know, and I see this, I see my clients do this all the time that they do it with their attorneys, that they end up hiring an attorney who is abusive in very similar ways Oh, true. That right, they recognize the behavior and they're drawn to it. And it's I see it all the time with an attorney who's dismissive of you know their experience. And and I think there's a difference between an attorney saying, "I am so sorry that happened to you," and I know the judges in this area, and I know the law, and like you know, coercive control is only codified in five states, and you know, illegal in none. And so. We, you know, I'm sorry that he was emotionally abusive, but that's not going to hold up in court and that sucks. Here's what we need to do. And there's a difference between that and that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. Right. Like, who cares? Right. Being dismissive like that, because that's double abuse. I mean, your attorney has so much, ultimately so much power in your divorce and, and in, and in your healing, you know, and when you're being so vulnerable. You're so vulnerable and you need someone who's going to say, I've got you. I've got you. I've got you. And I'm going to walk you through this with, you know, tenderness and care. And if that is not your attorney, move on. And now a quick word from our sponsor. So you guys, probably one of the most important things that you can do for yourself when you get divorced is to get new sheets for so many reasons. And I can't recommend Cozy Earth Sheets enough. Oprah named Cozy Earth Sheets as one of her favorite things, and they are also one of mine. All Cozy Earth products are made from responsibly sourced viscose from bamboo. And you guys, they are the softest sheets I've ever slept on. And what's more, Cozy Earth bedding is temperature regulating, which for a woman of my age is really important and pretty much life-changing. They also have loungewear that offers optimal comfort while maintaining a flattering and elegant fit, as well as premium bath products, which they offer in both a plush collection as well as their new waffle collection. And all of Cozy Earth's products come with a 10-year warranty. When you're starting again in a new home, you deserve to have the softest and most luxurious sheets available. And those, my friends, are Cozy Earth Sheets. So the best news is that Cozy Earth is providing an exclusive offer for listeners of 35% off everything on their site when you use the code DSG at checkout. That's Divorce Survival Guide. 
DSG. So that's CozyEarth.com. And be sure to use the code DSG at checkout for 35% off. And now back to our show. You need someone who understands what you're going through and knows how creative they need to get in order to advocate best for you based That's on right. circumstances. Yeah. And you know, so victims can reach out to maybe they have a friend that maybe they have one friend who's really compassionate. And so they can say, will you just go for a walk for me when, with me once a week? Mm-hmm. You know, some way to connect, not calling them every day and burdening them too much, but knowing that you have someone that you can confide in once a week and take a nice long walk and then being involved with a domestic violence agency. And they can do things like join an exercise class and meet new friends there that, and it'll be superficial relationships, but it'll increase their endorphins and which will help counteract some of the trauma, the stress, the cortisol, and uh, the stress hormones. Um, they, there's so many things of s- related to self-care, taking mm-hmm. a hot bath, listening to relaxing music, or reading a great book, or you know, so many things that you yeah. can do to help. Honestly, you have to stretch yourself to do them because when you have PTSD or complex PTSD, you just want to isolate and stay indoors and do nothing. You, you feel don't. Broken. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to, you don't, I will tell you, you said that the, you know, the, the gym relationships are superficial and I will tell you that my gym, and I think it's a very special place or was a special place. It's no longer, it's now no longer in operation because of the pandemic, but you know, it was not superficial. Like these women are, we just went on a retreat. Uh, to Costa Rica together. And these, when you show up to the same place, you know, a few times a week with the same women, especially when you, you know, you get a bunch of moms who are struggling with various things with their kids, with their marriages, right? At a certain age, right? <laughs> like everyone's going through it. And you show up to the same place. I would just, there were days when I could barely function. And all I could do was drive my car and sit in front of the classroom. And like, wait for my friends to arrive. <laughs> you know? I, totally, I totally understand that. And I believe that yeah. it was so hard for me to start exercising again. I was so frozen in my house, afraid of being traumatized by just being out in public. Like I was, I was just so afraid mm-hmm. that I was going to face more trauma that I just yeah. was too isolating. It's not helpful if we have time, but I wanted to just oh, yeah. mention few things that we've noticed in the media uh, where double abuse took place. For example, um, when Larry, Larry Na- Dr. Larry Nasser with USA Gymnastics in Michigan mm-hmm. City, he groomed his victims and lied to them about the efficacy of the questionable treatments that he provided. And then USA Gymnastics and Michigan State University ignored minimized and criticized the the girls and women, even though there were dozens and dozens of complaints. Mm -hmm. Often victims were told he was a famous doctor and they should be thankful that they get to be treated by him. Or if they don't stop complaining, they'll be off the team. Those are several examples of how those poor victims were really doubly abused by institutions, Mm -hmm. which is so harmful because 
you expect that a national team with experts and a university with academia and people that are supposed to be informed yeah are going to be able to support you and when they don't it is such you're so blindsided you're so confounded because it's so different than your reasonable expectation that you would be supported mm-hmm. that been in their community there they were very traumatized by that secondary layer it also happened you know in the Harvey Weinstein cases they were <laughs> did it ever <laughs> back to his office by his staff that knew full well what was going to happen and then if they spoke out he would sabotage them and slandered them publicly and trying to re- retaliate in ways where they couldn't be hired to work in the industry um which yep. you know talk about erasing a person's identity they can no right. longer work in their industry if they speak up and so it does it does happen you know we've heard about it in public but we don't hear people we don't hear the media saying these were forms of covert emotional abuse and double abuse we don't hear mm-hmm, it being mm-hmm. named and how can we stop what doesn't have a name and that's one reason why i just really wanted to put a name to it yeah so think it might be important for your listeners to so how do we respond like what is a what are ways that we should respond and what are ways that you should expect others to respond to you to 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 verify whether they're safe or not mm-hmm. um I'd love to go through a couple yeah. of them. call it we call it our healing model of compassion mm-hmm. um, and basically you can use this with your kids with a friend that's not talking to you about a traumatic experience maybe they're just talking to you about a little spat they had with their sibling or their mother or whomever but anyways the first step i mean cuz we let me just preface this by saying we can't all be experts in the field of trauma and abuse so <laughs> what what do we try give me parameters give me simple parameters i can follow so mm-hmm. that i know i won't be adding harm yeah. to someone who's confiding in me and the first mm-hmm. step is to listen it's to listen 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 uh you don't have to say much of anything um you want to have your mouth closed it's such a strong tendency to interrupt someone when they're trying to tell their story and say well mm-hmm. i i've seen you be short at times maybe you were being short and that's why you know they'll make comments don't do that just listen let the the victim is processing what they're going through and they need to process it out loud with someone else who's safe mm-hmm. and so by you just accepting that your job is to listen um is already a huge breakthrough and will be a, a wonderful gift for the person confiding in you don't assume that you know better or interrupt them redirect them or place expectations on them just accept that your job is to listen and then the next step is accept their story to be true so the word is accept believe the experience to be true at least until there's ample evidence to prove otherwise because there's no harm that you're causing someone in believing but if you do the opposite and don't believe them you risk causing significant harm and the studies show that 97% of people who've been assaulted 
or are being abused are telling the truth. So very few lie. So accept and believe it to be true. And then the next step is empathize. Put yourself in the other person's shoes. But in order to be able to do that effectively, you first have to believe that it's true or right. you can't possibly empathize. So you don't want to, uh, the things not to do in empathy is don't criticize their personal choice, whether they decide to stay or whether they decide to leave or to separate or whatever. Mm-hmm. That is a slow process that the victim needs to make on their own. We don't need to speak down to them as though we know better. We don't know better. The victim is the one, if they're not strong enough to leave, they'll never be able to leave. If they're not strong enough to set boundaries because they don't have enough knowledge yet, or they haven't processed it enough yet, they won't be able to set firm boundaries. So your job is to just put yourself in their shoes and be empathic. The next step is validate validate them, mirror back what you understand and tell them that they have every reason to feel the way they do. You know, you want to tell them it's not your fault. No one deserves to be treated that way. Um, Everybody deserves to feel loved. Everyone deserves to experience empathy from their partner. Um, So you just want to validate them. That is going to be a life force for them. What's the opposite word of validate? Unvalidated, invalidate, invalidate. Yeah, you invalidate. Like, right? Like, we like they make us feel like we're crazy, or like it's our fault, or right? I mean, it's that's right, and that's what they've been experiencing from their abuser for years. So you don't right. want to m- mimic that in any way. You just mm-hmm. want to strengthen them and let them know that they have every right to feel that way. And also, I want to insert: never breach their confidentiality. That is highly traumatizing. Yes, you might want to just right. go to a friend and say, "Oh, we need to pray for so and so," or "We need to think good thoughts for so and so." That's gossip. Do not breach their confidentiality, and do not go to the abuser and confront them without the victim's permission. Your it's job so dangerous. That's to, dangerous. It's very dangerous. Your job is to validate the victim, and then I also use this term called identify. And that is when you can just stop for a moment, maybe 20 seconds, no more, find your parallel experience without shifting the focus. So for example, you might say, gosh, that reminds me of something I experienced several years ago, and I can only imagine what you're feeling now. Don't derail the conversation like so many of us do. We'll go, well, let me tell you what happened to me Mm -hmm. and over the conversation and no longer does the victim have a listener. That is a really traumatizing experience for them. Um, They may just have to end the conversation and leave. They don't have the capacity to take on your story in the midst of their chaos. And then um, the next step is encourage. Encourage them. Say, I believe in you. You're a good person. You're going to get through this. This is an awful season you're in, but it's temporary. You know, try to give them things to look forward to. Try to give them hope. A sense of hope is what they really need when they're feeling so hopeless. And then the next step is ask, how can I help? Don't ask them other questions. Like Mm. I mentioned before, well, what have you tried this? Or why didn't you do, or I would have said that. Why didn't you say this? So much of that goes on. Ask one question. How can I help you? You want to find out, don't be afraid to ask that question. I think so many people think, 
the person's going to say, can I move into your house with my five kids for a year? Um, you're likely not going to get that. You're likely going to get something like, would you be willing to come with me to my lawyer's office? Because I tend to get fragmented and I start shaking and I have a hard time conveying all my points. Or will you come with me to my doctor's office and take notes? Or will you go for a walk with me once a week? It's usually something much more reasonable. Or maybe it's just they're so traumatized, they they can't do research on the computer. So you can ask them, can I help find you resources and do some digging for them and provide them some resources they can call. Um, but basically, it's just you're asking how you can help. You're not asking anything else. And then the last step is to grieve. Allow them to grieve. Don't interrupt and say, oh, don't cry. So often that happens. They're either grieving for finally recognizing what's been going on and they're so sad, or they're grieving a loss of a dream, or they're grieving what they're going to lose if they leave. It's so life-giving if you can grieve with them and even shed a tear with them and allow them to process that and to be comforting to them and to just let them cry as long as they need to. Um, So they feel they are loved and supported and can express themselves in a way that they need to Mm -hmm. such a place of deep sorrow. Those are simple steps. Listen, accept, empathize, validate, identify, encourage, ask, and grieve that you can do. And even if you just did one or two of these things, it would be so helpful and not harmful if someone's fighting in you. And if we like so often children get doubly abused, they come home and they say, I'm being bullied at school. And instead of going and intervening on their behalf and really getting involved, we say to the child, well, what did you do to cause them to be so upset at you? Or why don't you just go play on the other side of the playground? We start instructing the victim, Mm -hmm. instead of validating the victim, hearing about what they're emotionally feeling, you know, really supporting them and advocating for them. We tend to do that even to our children and children cannot navigate through bullying without adult intervention. Right. It it just happened. And so it plays out in how we respond to our kids too. Absolutely. That goes for the way that our uh, partner, our spouse, our ex-spouse, right? The other parent uh, may be treating the kids in ways, you know, this is, a, this is a wonderful list, right? Listen, accept, empathize, validate, everything you just went through for helping our kids when they're being abused by their other parent. Absolutely. I, um, oh, yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up. Something that a, a lot of parents... Um, former victims, you know, or survivors will do is that, you know, kids get confused. Um, They don't know who to believe because Mm -hmm. the perpetrator is so convincing and he has been working on them over time, disparaging the other parent um, without that parent knowing it. And so distorting the child's viewpoint, it's so important for the victim survivor to not try to, unless kids really ask, And then I think it's important to answer them truthfully, but if they aren't asking, it's important to not 
carry your burdens and try to justify yourself and your decisions and try to and basically disparage the other parent. It's more important that you place yourself, use these tools that I just mentioned to be invested in what your child is interested in. How are you doing in school? What's going on with your friends? Tell me about your day. Just let them consistently see that you are not going to be judgmental and harsh. You are interested in their emotions and what they're feeling. You're interested in supporting them. You care so much about them, more about them than you do yourself because you don't need to share your own personal problems with them. You're Mm -hmm. there for them. And so often when I see that is done correctly, the child is able to then discern who the healthy parent is, who the safe parent is, and who the unsafe parent is. It becomes very clear. I tell my clients all the time, like this is a long game. And in the short term, yeah, they're going to be really confused. But the more you just show up listening to them, empathizing with them, validating their experiences, allowing them to grieve everything that you've outlined, the more safe they're going to feel with you. Mm-hmm. And eventually that is going to, they'll, they'll figure it out. It'll become very clear over time. Absolutely. Yeah. I yeah. really believe that. It's 100%. Very sad when it doesn't happen because there are those cases, but I still think that the best way to increase the odds is to just be, if if you've been cut off by a child, send them notes. Like, I just would love to know how your life is going. You know, how are you doing? And keep those notes about them, not you. About them, exactly. (laughs) About them. About About them. them. No matter what, I love you. Mm-hmm. Right. An empathic protective parent will make these, these, you know, missives about, about the kid, right? Like, I miss you. I love you. I want to know that you're doing well. And a, and a, and an abusive, abusive parent will make those missives all about themselves. <laughs> right. right. How dare you not speak to me? I'm your father. I have a right. I'm, you know, <laughs> or you'll never believe what your mother did today. She, right. Some completely, false accusation that confuses them. That's right. That's right. Annette, thank you so much for this conversation. I mean, I think double abuse, you know, it happens in so many areas Yeah, and it even happens in like, like you said, in the areas where people truly think that they're going, should be able to get the most help right? Whether it's in your faith community or even with therapists, you know, therapists are not trained in domestic violence. Like you have to saying that it's so true. There's no training that's required, you know? And so they, they have like 10 hours of abuse training and they can choose it under any topic of abuse. And when you think of all these marriage and family therapists, and they have no experience to be able to identify covert emotional abuse, Mind blowing, uh, yeah. And courts, I mean, judges. Well, I've, I'm, yes. I've like, I've, I'm like a broken record, but you know, judges are required to have zero, zero training in domestic violence, and yet they're they're ruling on domestic issues. <laughs> so, you know, it's so important that we educate ourselves, and that we are, you know, we do so much work helping 
uh, victims identify abuse in their relationships. So having this broader conversation about like, oh, and also we have to learn to identify it in all these other areas, right? Is it's hard. It's hard to, to manage, but it's important. Yes. And we have to choose safe people. Don't, Mm -hmm. don't just give yourself permission to step away from even family members. If you need to, especially (laughs) right. Yes. You have to take care of yourself and you cannot take care of yourself if you're being traumatized by double abuse. Yes. Okay. To close the door for a while and Mm -hmm. go elsewhere. And, you know, listen, a lot of this is unintentional, but it doesn't matter, right? It's still, you're not getting what you need. You know, you don't have the bandwidth right now to not get what you need. That's right. You know, you just don't have it. You don't have it in you. So they need to be self-protective in -hmm. some ways. It makes me really sad when people go to their church and the church hasn't been educated on domestic violence. So they don't even believe that emotional abuse is a form of domestic violence. Right. And then they, they place the institution of marriage in a higher position than they do the well-being of the victim and the children inside the marriage. They're right. so concerned about not having a divorce that they just lay all this responsibility on the victim to hold, you know, submit, pray more, hold the marriage together at all costs, quit complaining, don't expect so much, don't be so sensitive, you know, all the things that just minimize them further. And it's so disappointing because they believe that their faith person is a person of authority and knowledge. They have that reasonable expectation. And so when the opposite happens, they feel like the rug has been pulled out from under them. And many churches will go as far as to excommunicate someone from their church for separating or divorcing. Right. Absolutely. Talk about altering your identity. You get publicly shamed in front of your entire church. This happens and it's the opposite of love. It's the opposite of what I think. All in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, exactly what it's, it's not the way Jesus would have ever handled it. And nope, they take this authority and power over the victim. They power over them and just like the abuser is. And it's just, it makes me really sad to see that happen, but same, same, same. Uh, Annette, thank you so much as thank always. You for having me. It's always such a pleasure. We love it. And I appreciate all the work you do. And the same to you. So where can people find you if they want to find out more about the MEND project, about you and your work, which is so important? Tell everyone where to go. Okay. So if they go to our website, um, the MEND, M-E-N-D as in dog, project.com, we have a lot of resources on our website. We also offer classes. In fact, we offer coursework for victims, survivors, and then separate coursework for responders or helpers that will just exponentially, it'll, it'll jump them forward in their healing process. Yes. More so than many therapeutic sessions, it will just speed up the process so they can be much more effective Mm -hmm. um, in therapy. If they go, Um, we also have a YouTube channel where once a month or sometimes more, I will do a workshop and talk about 
some of the deeper issues within domestic violence. One was on reactive abuse, Mm -hmm. um, how sometimes the victim will overreact. Is that abusive or is it not? I I like to call it reactive defense. (laughs) I call it, I call it (laughs) (laughs) self-defense. So we we talk about things like that and clarify them. And so I encourage them to go and those are free. Mm -hmm. The, the, um, the coursework is um, there's a small charge, but we also offer scholarships. We don't turn people away. So yes, come to our website and look at our classes and highly recommend. Yes. Yes. Highly recommend. Um, I've done some of the coursework and I obviously am a huge fan of, of Annette and the MEND project. You can also make the MEND project your, your, if you have like Amazon smile, you can make the MEND project your recipient of your smile dollars, which I do. Oh, we would love that. Yeah. Thank you so much for that, Kate. Yeah. Thank you. There are lots of ways to support the work that Annette is doing and um, and her team, her amazing team. So definitely uh, follow along. And if you love Annette's work as I do, make sure that you go to her website and get on their mailing list and do all the things. So thank you, Annette. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. We'll talk to you again. For sure. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at the Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.